Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Welcome back. Happy Monday, if it is Monday. Who even knows anymore? My five-year-old used to be reliable on this count, and she can't even keep track anymore. I hope you're figuring out how to safely expand your bubbles. I know, we're still trying to figure it out in our family. Today, we will finish the works of Sophocles, meaning we are about two-thirds of the way through the Greek tragedy course. Sophocles died in 406 BCE, and he finished writing Oedipus at Colonus around then. It wasn't performed until 401 BCE. This places the writing of it at the end of the Peloponnesian War, and we've seen a bit of the upheaval in Athens at this time in the Greek comedy episodes. Uh, but even more than that, we'll see how it is age itself that largely influences this play. Oedipus at Colonus comes chronologically between Oedipus Rex and Antigone, but obviously it was written last. I'm working from the same text I used for the other two plays in this, not really a trilogy. Uh, Robert Fitzgerald translated Oedipus at Colonus for this book and also wrote an excellent commentary that's included after the script. And because it is part of a larger story that we've read, it therefore has several characters that should be familiar to you from Oedipus Rex, Antigone, and Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes. The characters you already know are Oedipus, Antigone, Ismene, Creon, and Polynices. The only other named character is Theseus, which is a name that should sound familiar to you, uh, at the very least from Disney's Hercules. He's one of the yeses that Phil complains about. But if you've heard the story of the Minotaur, that would be the other place you've heard his name. Mythology tells us that he was king of Athens, and that's why he appears in this play. There are two unnamed characters, a stranger and a messenger, and the homogenous chorus consists of the old men of Colonus. Colonus is a town just outside of Athens, and it's also Sophocles' hometown, which may explain why he chose that setting. You already know the background of the myth, so we'll take a short break before going over what happens in this part of the story. The play opens near the Grove of the Furies at Colonus, about a mile outside of Athens. Oedipus and Antigone enter. About 20 years have passed since we saw them in Oedipus Rex. This means Antigone is now an adult and Oedipus is now an old man. Ever since he blinded himself, Antigone has been his guide. He asks her where they are. Antigone describes the setting and says that while she doesn't know the exact place, she does know that they are near Athens. Oedipus sits to rest, and Antigone offers to go and find out exactly where they are. Oedipus asks her to, but only if there is someone near enough to ask. Right on cue, a stranger enters. Before Oedipus can finish asking the stranger where they are, the man tells him to stand up and not go any farther, because this is a holy place. It is where the gentle, all-seeing ones live. You've heard of them by their Greek name before. The Eumenides. Oedipus sighs with relief. He has found his final resting place. This is where he is supposed to have come. He will stay where he is. The stranger is frustrated by this, but his hands are tied. He can't just force the old man to move, not without permission from Athens and not without offering proof of the old man's trespass. But he's also polite and provides detail about where they are when asked. 
They are outside of Athens, in the foothills, where the hero Colonus once lived, and that's why the place bears his name. Theseus, son of Aegeus, king of Athens, is in charge. Oedipus asks to speak to Theseus. The stranger can't understand how a man so old and blind can be of assistance to the king, but he obliges and exits. After Antigone confirms that the stranger has gone, Oedipus prays to the Eumenides. He reminds them that the oracle that told of his earlier life also told of his final resting place, that he should ultimately find a home among the Furies. He prays that his life will finally end here, and he asks Athena for mercy because he is now old and infirm and not the man he once was. Antigone tells him that she sees people coming. Oedipus directs her to lead them off the path so that they can get a better sense of how they will be treated by this new group of strangers. They exit. The chorus enters and searches for Oedipus. He enters. The chorus recoils at both the sight of his face and the sound of his voice. So if you were having a hard time visualizing an old man who gouged out his eyes 20 years earlier, well, yeah. Honestly, that's the big reason I want to see this. I keep forgetting that Oedipus is probably pretty scarred from what he did to himself. Anyway, Antigone enters too and returns to her place as Oedipus's guide. She leads him to a, a place the chorus indicates for him to sit on a rock, and once he is seated, the chorus asks him for his biography. He is reluctant to say, but finally admits that he is the son of Laius. The chorus has heard of Laius, and his son Oedipus? They've heard of him too. They recoil when they realize that that is who sits before them. And despite the fact that they had promised him safe haven, they tell him to leave. They don't want the evil that surrounds him in their land. Antigone speaks up. He didn't know what he did when he did it. It was the fault of fate. No one can escape fate. They should have mercy. The chorus offers their pity, but they fear what the gods will do if they offer mercy. Oedipus tries to explain. He doesn't justify what he has done. He doesn't defend it. He admits that it was wrong. But the oracle did as much evil by him as it led him to do evil. He didn't know it was his father. He retaliated because he'd been wronged. They would have done the same. And he's already been ruined by his actions. He begs their mercy. The chorus can't bring themselves to do it, but they do pass the buck to Theseus. Antigone sees a woman riding toward them. As the woman approaches, Antigone recognizes her. It is Ismene, her dear sister. Ismene enters and the three embrace in tears. She is relieved to see her sister and her father, and yes, he is her brother, but he is her father first. He asks after her brothers. Ismene sighs and explains that things are not well in Thebes. Initially, after Oedipus had been exiled and Antigone had gone with him to be his eyes, Polynices and Eteocles had both renounced the throne. They thought it would be best for Creon to rule instead. That would be the only way to end the curse on the house of Laius. But for some reason, Eteocles changed his mind. Instead, he stripped Polynices, his older brother, and therefore the logical heir to the throne, of his place, and exiled him. Polynices has now gone to Argos to assemble an army to overthrow Eteocles. And yes, this is slightly different than the way Aeschylus told this part of the story. The basics are the same. Eteocles has usurped the throne when it should belong to Polynices, and Polynices is gathering those who will become the famous Seven Against Thebes. But back to this play. Ismene then shares the last part of the oracle. Oedipus shall be much solicited by the people of Thebes before his death and after for their welfare. Oedipus can't believe this because what can he do? 
Ismini says that it's because the gods threw him down, that the gods that threw him down now sustain him. And it's really hard not to just read this whole scene to you because it's so beautifully written by Sophocles and beautifully translated by Fitzgerald. Ismini offers proof in the fact that Creon is on his way to see Oedipus right now. He wants Oedipus to settle near Thebes. Not in it, mind you, but close enough to die there. Close enough for Creon to make sure he doesn't receive a proper burial. Oedipus scoffs at this and is angered to learn that his sons care more about fighting over the crown than coming to their father's defense. He curses his sons and says they will never profit from the rule of Thebes. After hearing this exchange, the chorus decides that Oedipus and his daughters are worthy of their pity. They explain how to make a proper sacrifice to the amenities and exactly how he should pray. And his Ismini exits to find the correct spot for this prayer. The chorus can no longer contain their curiosity. They ask Oedipus to tell the rest of his story, the part about his mom, and how his daughters are also his sisters, how he suffered and sinned. Oedipus objects to the latter. He did not sin, he says, because Yocasta was a reward he had won. And he did not sin in killing his father because his father was trying to kill him. Before the law, he is innocent. Theseus enters. He speaks kindly to Oedipus. He knows his story already, and he knows what it's like to be an exile and a wanderer. Of course he will be kind. I know I am only a man, he says. I have no more to hope for in the end than you have. Oedipus says that he doesn't have much to ask or say, and that doesn't stop him from taking his time. But he does ask that Theseus protect him from Creon and see that he is buried here in Colonus. Theseus needs some explanation, but he ultimately agrees to the request. Theseus and his attendants exit. After a choral poem about the various gods who inhabit Colonus, Creon enters. Creon talks a good game. He talks about how Oedipus will be well cared for. If he'll just come home to Thebes. Oh, and look at poor Antigone. He can take care of her poor spinster that she is. Oedipus knows better than to buy it. He knows what Creon really wants, and he's not going to give it to him. He asks Creon to leave them in peace. Creon then twirls his mustache and says, Ha! I already have Ismini, and I'll soon have a Tigony too. It's kind of hard not to picture him as snidely whiplash during this exchange. At the same time, we do need to remember that Oedipus is old and a blind man with no mobility training, unable to function without Antigone to guide him. So, yes, the scene is melodramatic, but it is also intense and heart-wrenching. Antigone tries to run, but she is caught by Creon's guards. Oedipus reaches out to find her, asking her to give him her hand, but she physically can't, literally can't. She's held back. On Creon's orders, the guards drag her off. Now defenseless, Oedipus, too, is soon caught by Creon. Theseus enters with armed attendants. He tells Creon to let Oedipus go, and he tells him that he needs to release Antigone and Asmini, too, if he ever wants to go back to Thebes. He dispatches soldiers to overtake the men who have captured Antigone and Nismini. And then Theseus has an awesome speech. He berates Creon for coming to a land known for justice and acting above the authority of the city-state. He berates Creon for being a bad guest and for bringing disgrace upon Thebes by his behavior. And I may have drawn a little cheering emoji in my marginalia on this read. Okay, I totally drew a little cheering emoji in my marginalia on this read. It's, it's a great speech. 
Creon tries to defend himself. He only did this because he knew of what happened 20 years ago and because of what Oedipus did. And I know it's another direct quote, but I can't paraphrase it because, well, you'll see. Oedipus lashes out. The bloody deaths, the incest, the calamities you speak so glibly of. I suffered them by fate against my will. It was God's pleasure. And that's just the beginning of a lengthy speech about how Oedipus has suffered because of fate. He ends by calling on all of the gods in the grove to defend him against Creon. Theseus says that this is enough talking. Antigone and Ismene are still being carried off by Creon's men, and rescuing them is more important than cursing each other right now. Creon relents. Theseus tells Oedipus to wait where he is. He will go and bring his daughters back. Two guards lead Creon off, and Theseus and his attendants follow. Another choral poem, after another choral poem about war and peace, Theseus returns with Antigone and Ismene. The two women run to their father. Oedipus apologizes to Theseus for his desire to speak to his children, to hold them. And Theseus says that there is no offense in being a loving father. He himself would rather be remembered for his actions than for his words. But Theseus has news. A man who claims to be another relative of Oedipus is coming this way, but he's coming from Argos, not Thebes. Oedipus starts at this news. He knows from this information who it is. And Antigone says they should see him. Theseus exits. There is another choral poem at this point that the actor currently playing Theseus can change costumes. Remember that there are never more than three actors on stage at a time, so you'll note that Ismini hasn't said anything because she is currently being played by an extra. Polynices enters. He is relieved to see his sisters and his father. He speaks of his own exile, and he tells of the army he has assembled. He has asked, He's come to ask Oedipus to come with him. Oedipus refuses, and he tells Polynices that it will not end well. He tells him that he will not be able to capture Thebes and that this war will end with the death of both brothers. Oedipus angrily disowns Polynices, and he curses him, saying that he shall never see his home in Argus again and that he will die by his own brother's hand. All this before telling Polynices to leave. Polynices is saddened by this, but he is still resolved to go and fight. He makes one final wish before he exits. He asks his sisters to treat him honorably after he dies, to make sure he receives a proper burial, which, as you already know, is the entire plot of the play Antigone. After Polynices is gone, there is thunder and lightning. Oedipus calls for Theseus to take him to his final resting place. Theseus enters. Oedipus tells him that the weather is a sign from Zeus that his time has come. Everyone exits, except for the chorus. The chorus sings a song in praise of Persephone and wishes eternal sleep for Oedipus. A messenger enters and tells of what has happened off stage. Oedipus said farewell to his daughters. They wept and held each other. Then the voice of the god called and asked why Oedipus was delaying. He then asked for Theseus to pledge to continue his kindness to Antigone and Ismene. And then Oedipus walked away. And how he died, no one knows. But perhaps his daughters can provide more information. Antigone and Ismene enter. They speak of their grief and how the death of their father will affect their lives. Antigone says she should run back. She wants to see the place where he died. Ismene reminds her that it is forbidden. There isn't even a tomb. 
Antigone is distraught. She wants to be there anyway so that she too can die. Smeany wails and the chorus tries to console the two women. Theseus enters. Antigone begs him to take her to her father's resting place. Theseus tells her that it is holy ground and no mortal can go there. She isn't happy, but she accepts his answer. Instead, she and Ismene will return to Thebes and attempt to stop their brothers from killing each other. Theseus says he will help them however he can. And the play ends with the chorus saying that all the mourning shall end because everything is now up to the gods. I remember reading this play when I was in college and finding it to be, well, dull. <laughs> there are some things that get better with age. For example, I also remember reading Anne of Windy Poplars when I was about 12 and getting so frustrated by all the, the supposed redactions in the letters from Anne to Gilbert. It was my least favorite of the series. I reread it as an adult and I was finally able to read between the lines. It's still not my favorite, but it was a much better read as an adult. Oedipus at Colonus is the same for me. At 20, it was just weird and boring. Nothing nearly as exciting as Oedipus Rex. But with a couple more decades of life under my belt, on this reread, I found the beauty of this play. I'm pretty sure I've talked a lot about liminality already. And in case you've forgotten, that's the state of in-between. States of being, places, feelings. Sleep is liminal because it's in-between being awake and being dead. Um, when the stranger explains to Oedipus where they are, he describes the place as the Earth's dorsal of brass. A dorsal, a threshold, is neither in nor out. It is liminal. This place, Colonus, is a liminal space, and that contributes to the overall feeling of this play. Oedipus is in between the horrors of his life and the peace of his death, and these final moments of his life are spent in a physical space with liminality that matches the liminal place he is in, he is at in his life. It is also interesting that Oedipus brings up the concept of the law in defense in his defense of his father's murder. In his Oresteia, Aeschylus tells of how the Eumenides come to Athens and create a court. In Oedipus at Colonus, we see Oedipus at a shrine to the Eumenides in an Athenian suburb, speaking of how he is innocent under the law. And we see the theme of law and justice expanded in Theseus' speech. And it's important to remember that Athens at the time of Sophocles was Athens as we know it. Athens, the democracy, unique in its form of government. So the concept of justice in Athens might have been different than in other parts of Greece. And this play was written for an Athenian audience. So even though Theseus is a king, the Athenian audience lived in a democracy. Um... It's also noteworthy that Oedipus speaks of his innocence before the law. He does not try to claim that any of his actions were right or good, but that he is not guilty. Before I end this discussion, I do want to talk a little bit about Antigone and Ismene. It's been 20 years since Oedipus Rex, so they must be in their 20s. They're not children. They're in a very tenuous position. The risk of violence at the hands of Creon's men is high. Between their history and their gender, they are of incredibly low status. 
What we see of them in Antigone is not what we see of them here. There is no expectation of them being lifted up when this play ends. There is no chance for improved status back in Thebes. And yet we do see a softer Creon in Antigone. Is that because of the content of each play? Or is it because of a change in how Sophocles viewed the character over the course of his life? There's one final thing I, I have to share. In his notes, Fitzgerald comments that one of the difficulties in, in performing ancient Greek plays today is how theater has evolved. And he wonders if radio might not really be the best medium. And it really was hard not to just directly quote this entire play because it is such a beautiful play. And now I really want to gather a group of my theater friends and make a new podcast. Obviously, there is a lot more to talk about in this play. I didn't even get into talking about fate in this episode. And yes, there is a discussion prompt over on the blog about fate as well as many others. Um, the link, as always, is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will read book 18 of the Iliad. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.